Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight we're featuring a story by newcomer to the show, Justin K. Arthur. Justin has given us one hell of a story titled Urban Appetite. In it, our protagonist Steve has been enjoying his life in the countryside after moving out of St. Louis. Today, however, he is back in a city environment, having been invited by his friend Travis to his city to celebrate its bicentennial anniversary. Steve is already uncomfortable among the crowds and tall buildings, but his aversion to large cities is about to become much more justified. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. 
you'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? And now, from author Justin K. Arthur, I give you Urban Appetite. The buildings loomed above me in the street-lit night, threatening to crush down on me with their sheer weight, stretching from one side of the street to the other. Hey, Steve, said a voice, followed by a nudge on my shoulder to break me out of my trance. I turned around to see my friend Travis looking at me with concern. You okay, man? You freaking out? Sorry about that, I said, shaking myself. Just not used to this. Not anymore. Didn't you once live in St. Louis? He asked. I can't imagine it's worse here than it was there. The key difference is I spent as little time in the city as humanly possible, I said. The closest I got was Jennings, and as far as skyscrapers go, the best that area can offer is the Lewis and Clark building. Fair enough, he said. Just let me know if it gets to be too much, okay? I'll be okay, I said, the world encroaching less on me as I centered myself, thinking back to my house and the country, wide open spaces, nothing but grass and trees and all the privacy I could want. My wife was working in our barn dominium on her latest sculpture, the cats wandering around the property like they owned the place. Just... Man, I really don't get how this city is so... big. Travis shrugged. Guess that's just how the city planners worked it out. Travis had been my friend since college in Columbia, and one of the few people who could actually get me to enter an urban area like this of my own free will. If you like city living, more power to you, but I always feel like I'm getting smashed as if the skyscrapers looming around me are the closing jaws of a trap about to crush me to bits, or the fangs of a colossal animal clamping shut so I can be eaten alive. Travis, in comparison, has always been a city person. He grew up in Kansas City before making his way out east to Columbia for college and then to this city for his job as a teacher at a local high school. I don't think I should say the name of this city, and I have a feeling that if I did, you likely wouldn't get to read what I'm typing. But needless to say, it was very much his sort of place. Towering urban office buildings, everyone crammed in like sardines. Mixed-use development throughout so you can go from work to home and everywhere in between without a car. And lots, lots, lots of people. This city always struck me as a little enigma of Missouri, this concentrated little nugget of urban development in a state where the iconic monument is a celebration of people who left it. Yet, here it was, thriving and growing, drawing in everyone nearby for the past 200 years like flies to meat. It really was the sort of city that others aspired to be. It was convenient, affordable, even compared to rural areas like my thousand-person town, and had jobs across a wide variety of positions. Oddly, save civil engineers, even though something always seemed to be coming up. It all felt like the best-kept secret in the Midwest, since once you go a hundred miles out, 
people won't even know what you're talking about. The runaway success in this bizarre utopia resulted in the mayor hosting a bicentennial festival in honor of all the city had accomplished. That led to Travis inviting me to join him to share in the celebration. Normally, I wouldn't go anywhere near a city, even one as admittedly nice as this, but I hadn't had a good time with Travis since he was one of the groomsmen at my wedding. My wife needed to stay home to work on a piece, and I owed Travis this, and so much more. And now, here it was, the last stretch of the festival. The mayor rented out every theater and venue for a simultaneous broadcast from the historic old town hall, with a special message and gift for everyone. We were in line with everyone else outside the venue of our choosing, the foundry near the center of town. Travis was still living the bachelor life, so it was just us as we came closer and closer to the structure. So what on earth is the mayor even offering? I asked. I swear, it seems like the entire city and most of the nearby towns are out here. Don't know, said Travis. He looked to the people behind us, a father holding his young daughter's hand. Hey, do you know anything about the mayor's announcement? Not a clue said the older man. Maybe he's establishing a city holiday. I guess we'll find out, said Travis, shrugging and turning to me. What's that look? Nothing, I said, trying to drop the subject. Still couldn't get how he could do that sort of thing. Meanwhile, I was actively trying to make myself as small as possible. Thankfully, he didn't have a chance to push further since we'd made it to the security guards, one clearance of my wallet and phone later, and I was in the thrash, joined by Travis soon after. We made our way out to the standing-room-only section of the venue and waited, moving out of the way as a productive family with plenty of small children tried to make their way closer to the stage, the smallest of the bunch on his dad's shoulders. All of us were stuffed together, but thankfully not as much as we would have been at the stadium. I still tried to maintain that open space in my mind. My little house was plopped in the center of the image. It wasn't long before the projector powered on and the speakers crackled to life. A hush fell over the chattering crowd as the feed started, showing a podium in the old town hall, a riverside stone structure near the city's south side. What better way to celebrate the last two centuries than with a broadcast from the city's humble beginnings? A doughy, balding man just entering his fifties took the podium and smiled at the audience through his feed. Mayor Edgar Toomley. Greetings to every last one of you, he began, arms wide and inviting like he was a preacher before his disciples. It is such an honor to be trusted with the health and direction of this wonderful city of ours, and to be here to see this city reach two hundred years of age. The background image of my house vanished as something vibrated under my feet. Missouri is no stranger to earthquakes, but something about it stuck out to me. I looked around, but no one else seemed to have noticed it. We've broken 100,000 people who call our city home, and with this festival, even more of your family and friends, as well as our neighbors from our neighboring towns, have come in to share this joyous day with us, and I'm so happy we were able to. Another tremor, this one bigger. 
Travis started, and when I poked him, he looked at me. I nodded and gestured toward the nearest exit. We started making our way over, sifting through the crowd. And it is with such jubilation that I am happy to announce a gift to each and every one of you, from those of you watching the feeds in the stadium to those listening in at home and everyone in between. A third tremor was bigger, and now other people were also noticing. The crowd thinned out as we got closer to that dim, glowing exit sign. It's a gift that will immortalize each and every one of you as part of the greatest city in the Midwest. It is... I'm so hungry. That unspoken voice cut through my mind, and I could tell from the looks of everyone else that it had gone through theirs as well. Cold, emotionless, androgynous, empty of everything that made a voice human. The mayor's feed cut out with a harsh squeal of feedback right as the center of the venue's standing room floor caved in. Holy crap! yelled Travis, hauling himself away as fast as he could while I chased after him. He plowed through anyone unfortunate enough to be blocking him while I ducked and bobbed through the people freezing up. I risked a few glances behind me as I followed, wishing I had something else on my person besides just my wallet and phone. The floor continued to cave in, pulling more and more panicking people into what looked like some sort of service area underneath the venue. The throng erupted into screams of terror as everyone tried to climb over each other to get out of the way as the floor collapsed. Well over a hundred people had already vanished into the hole in the ground, and then the hole spread further back on the floor, consuming the bar area and pulling people not fast enough to get off their seats down with it. People tried to get out of the main doors, but they had shut and looked like they weren't opening. For some reason, the doors, which I had thought were supposed to open outward, held firm against the throng attempting to break free. The people trying to open them inward got pinned against the doors by the mindless mob desperate for anything that looked like an exit until the collapsing floor reached them, too. Similar terror swept through the upper balconies until they disconnected from the sides of the venue and fell into that cavernous hole like everything else. I managed to reach the emergency exit, following Travis and a few other survivors who had been lucky enough to be near it. We would have never made it if we had stayed in our original spot. Even those behind me hadn't been so lucky, and as I passed that threshold into the cramped alley by the foundry, I saw the woman behind me slip down crumbling concrete. I reached a hand out to grab her, steadying myself against the doorframe for support, but even as I grabbed her, I saw a cable... It looked like it had fallen from the ceiling, but had somehow wrapped around the woman's leg. The other half of the cable fell, the large light tumbling down the pit, pulling the woman's hand out of mine and dooming her. I stared, eyes the size of dinner plates as the squirming mass of hundreds of innocent people wriggled and writhed like worms, everyone climbing over each other in their desperate attempts to escape their fate. Then, a foul smell hit my nose. A cloying, burning stench like vomit shot up and made me recoil, but not before I saw a sickly green fluid start pouring up between the fallen bits of rubble and survivors. But not for long. A harsh sizzling grew underneath all the screams of pain and shattering rumble, and the crowd cried out even harder than before. 
More. A hand on my shoulder broke me out of my trance as Travis hauled me out of the building, his wide eyes staring into my own. What the actual hell? He yelled. Oh my god! I yelled back, both of us shaking so much it was a miracle we could stand. Those people, they're... they're getting dissolved. The pit's filling up with acid. And we're not joining them. He grabbed me by the coat and pulled me away from the building, away from the screaming shrieks of men, women, and children being killed in one of the worst ways I could imagine. We gotta get out of here. I saw something off in the distance that made me start. I broke free and grabbed him in turn, slowing him down. And to where? I asked. Anywhere but here, he said. Some of the other survivors were coming up to us, shocked beyond words. I don't know what on earth happened, but if we stay here any longer, we're gonna die. I pointed a shaking finger down the street towards the city's covered stadium. Even from this distance, we could all see its roof caving in, the sides falling inwards, darkness consuming it as readily as the ground did. All around us, screams erupted from buildings just like the one we had escaped. We all stood there in the darkness of the alleyway, turning around in circles as we tried to pinpoint the sources. There were too many to count. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I don't think there's a place where we won't die now. We stood in the alleyway by the foundry, trying to gather our shattered wits with the other survivors after the venue caved in. We'd all pulled out our phones, but nothing worked. No signal could be found. Even emergency calls failed. Someone tried to make a satellite connection, but it failed just like everything else. Given the street lights, the power grid was still on despite all the buildings caving in from the inside out, but we were completely cut off. A little girl cried in the arms of her father. It's gonna be okay. He said to her in that gentle, paternal tone, stroking her hair as he held her. I caught his eye and could tell he didn't believe his words. I knew I should have just stayed at home, growled some dumpy-looking bearded man. This... this can't... this can't... fretted a young woman, pacing back and forth as her friend tried to calm her down. More... That dead voice cut through our worries, making us all freeze up. The same voice that had preceded this entire disaster. 
We all shut our mouths, even the little girl, reducing her cries to whimpers as she buried her face in her father's shirt. The seven of us stood stock still for a moment, growing more aware that the cries, screams, and shrieks of those trapped in those pits were fading into the night. We moved closer together in the darkness of the alleyway, sharing looks as if any of us would have the answers we were all craving. Okay, said Travis. At least, at least we made it. What do we do? asked the father. We gotta get home. We gotta get her mother. He cradled his child against him. We definitely can't stay here, said Travis. If we're gonna make it, we gotta work together. I'm Travis, and this here is Steve. Hi, I said, sheepish shyness weighing on me on top of everything else as they all turned to regard me. Roger, said the father. This is Vivi. Sam, said the bearded man. I... I'm Jess, said the panicky woman. Her friend waved. Annie. Wish we could have met under better circumstances said Travis. But at least we're here and not in there. He gestured to the foundry. The sounds in the pit were completely gone now, save a constant sizzling and bubbling. It seemed as soon as everyone in the venue had fallen into the pit, the building had stopped caving in on itself. We need to... We need to get out of this city as fast as humanly possible, I said forcing myself to talk even as I froze and paused. Not without her mother, said Roger. I'm going back home and not leaving until this is over, said Sam, his face almost jiggling with his disapproval of my suggestion. We can't leave this city, said Jess. Even Annie was shaking her head at me. Listen, I said, forcing my words out. I stumbled over them, trying to keep myself from stammering. There's something wrong with this city. It... Cities don't do this. It's like it's... It's actively trying to kill us. You hear that... That voice? What? You think the entire city came to life and caused all this? Grumbled Sam. I don't know, I said. I know as much as you all do, but... You have to admit something's wrong here. If we stay in the city, we're going to die. All of us. I looked at Roger and Vivi. Once we're out, we can get help. We can save your wife. I turned to Sam. We can make sure going to your house is safe. I faced Jess and Annie. Stay, if you want. I'm leaving. I ended with Travis. If we stay, we die. Tell me I'm wrong. Travis shook his head. Nope, he said. You said what was on my mind. He looked back at the others. If we head south, we can cut through the historical district and make it to the city limits. Hopefully, once we get past them, we're safe. Sam sighed. <sighs> Fine, he said. I'm not going to my house alone. I'm sure Mama will be fine, said Roger to his daughter. She'll stay nice and safe at home, okay? Historical district, said Jess. That's where the mayor is, right? Yes, said Travis. We'll swing by, 
If anyone is getting a hold on the situation, it's Toonley. He turned to me. You okay with a detour to the historic city hall, Steve? If Toonley can help, we won't have to cover nearly as much ground. It's a long way to the city limits. I sighed. Whatever keeps us alive, I said before gesturing to him. Lead the way. I don't know how to get around this city you have me trapped in. You can rub this in once we're out of here alive, he said. Stay close, everybody. Travis moved to the mouth of the alleyway as we clustered in behind him, looking around at the encroaching buildings lining the lit street. Not a car on the road and no noise at all, save the occasional crash and crumble echoing from somewhere else in the city. No dogs, no sirens, none of the usual sounds that should be present, even with such a catastrophic disaster going on. No noise except the wind, which seemed almost to pulsate, coming and going. We turned onto the street, heading south toward the historic city hall, so far off in the distance it might as well have been in St. Louis. We kept off the road and fanned out across the sidewalk, none of us knowing how to place ourselves. Was staying by the buildings where we could hide in the shadows safer? Could the streets cave in like the venue floor had? None of us knew, and no one had the same answer. I chose the buildings, doing my best to stay out of the streetlights. The windows in every structure felt like a series of eyeballs gazing down at me, sizing me up. At least at their walls, I felt like I was traveling just under their noses. As I was looking upward, I spotted something at an intersection, plopped on one of the stoplights, flashing red. I stopped the group and pointed it out to them. One of those little traffic cameras they used to extort speeding tickets out of civilians. I don't like those things at the best of times, but after everything else, this one made my skin crawl. Most of them are fake, said Sam. They're just there to make you think they're real, get you to slow down like sheep. What if it's real, though? asked Jess. Maybe someone's alive at the police station? We could see if we could signal them. We could get help right away. Jess paused, looking up at the camera with what started as optimism, but faded to uncertainty. Do they check the feeds that often? asked Travis. My high school has cameras all over, and I'm pretty sure the security guard just plays games on his phone all day. It's probably better to just keep going. No way it would be so easy, I said. Don't let the cameras see you. I don't think what's looking on the other end is something that wants to help us. Okay, said Jess. If all of you want to be dimwits, go ahead. I'm not staying alone out here longer than I should. With that, she walked to the sidewalk's edge, despite Annie grabbing her by the arm. Oh, please, Annie. You can't seriously want to go all the way to City Hall in heels. She broke free of her grip and moved out onto the street, Annie not daring to step onto the asphalt. We all watched her move out onto the street, stepping into the center of the intersection before looking right at the traffic camera. Hey! She called, bouncing up and down and waving her arms. We need help! Is anyone there? Please, where? The lights on the street all stopped flashing and turned green. The asphalt underneath Jess caved in, and she barely had time to shriek as she fell vanishing into what had once been part of the sewer system. 
She landed hard on the edge of the walkway and fell into the center of the canal, struggling to pull herself back up by grabbing a fallen pipe and using it for leverage. As she did, the line burst, sending a torrent of water that knocked her off her feet and sent her sliding down the sloped waterway, disappearing into the depths of the city sewer system. The camera swiveled around on a pivot I didn't even know it had. It's looking for us, I gasped. Run! This way, said Travis, taking off. I followed behind, the rest of the group chasing after us, Annie doing her best to stifle her sobs. What's looking for us? asked Sam. The city? You can't be serious. It saw her through the camera, I said. It wasn't until after she got its attention that the street caved in and took her. And back at the foundry, that place had to have lots of cameras. Even if it didn't, a venue like that would have lots of people. Wait, you seriously do think the city itself is doing this? Asked Sam. This is just some bizarre series of coincidences. They probably built this place on top of a network of caves that are finally collapsing. Caves full of acid? I asked. Acid? Asked Roger, huffing as he carried his daughter. Back at the foundry, said Travis... After everyone fell into the pit, it started filling up with acid. That's why they all died. Acid flowed in and dissolved them. I saw no such thing, said Sam, huffing even harder than the father carrying a child. That wasn't acid. It's just dirty water you're mistaking for acid. The people drowned or got crushed or choked on gas. Being skeptical and being closed-minded are two different things. I growled, feeling a stitch form on my side. I know what I saw, and I trust my eyes more than you. Or am I to favor your insistence it can't be because you think it's absurd? What a bunch of idiots, mocked Sam. Screw your plans. My place is nearby. We came to the end of the street, stopping to catch our breath while looking at the intersection lights. Two more traffic cameras swiveling about looking for us. Off on the other side of the street was an electronic billboard cycling through various ads. Don't go off on your own, said Travis. You stick together in a crisis. Annie shook her head, waving off Sam like trying to shoo away an insect. Even Roger didn't look particularly desperate to keep the bearded man with us. Given what you and he apparently think, I'll be quite fine on my own, sneered Sam, moving to the intersection. Just gotta time it when the cameras aren't looking. His puffy red face looked east. Then it's just a few miles to my home. You won't make it a block, I said. Says someone I'm surprised made it anywhere in life, he retorted. He stared off into the distance. Things are looking better for me already. A single taxi cab was coming toward us, empty save for the driver. It coasted down the street, making as little noise as possible before cutting through the intersection practically on the corner of the crosswalk, slowing to a stop on the left side of the road, a mere twenty feet away from Sam. The passenger window rolled down and the cab driver leaned our way. Get off the street! He hissed. It's dangerous out here! Don't have to tell me twice, 
said Sam, moving toward the cab as he struggled to regain his breath. Come with me, he said to Annie, Roger, and Vivi. We'll fit. Let those two get themselves killed. My hair stood up as I looked at the taxi cab, the driver waving to us. He looked normal, just your average person trying to make ends meet in an overpriced urban area. I tried to think it through. Would whatever was causing this target vehicles? Almost everyone had been outside of their cars when disaster struck. It took Jess because she was out in the open. Could a car fool this... entity? I shook my head at Roger and Annie. Roger looked at Vivi, arms wrapped around his neck, then at the car again. Annie looked to be thinking it over, but made no move. Have fun dying, said Sam, opening the door and squeezing himself into the back seat. It's your funeral, you morons. Get off the street, said the cab driver in the same tone as before. It's dangerous out here. He kept looking at us in the same way he had before Sam had moved up to the cab. They heard you the first time, said Sam. Punch it! You can wait it out at my home with me. Get off the street, repeated the cab driver, what had been an identical tone distorting and falling as he somehow leaned so far ahead his face was out the passenger window. It's dangerous out Sam's eyes widened, and he shuffled himself around right when, in the dead silence of the streets, we all heard the audible click of the doors locking. Even from this distance, I could see Sam looking at the front seat in horror. What had once been a cab driver turned its head 180 degrees and moved it to the other window then another 90 to look at Sam. Get off the street. It growled like a winding down record. The former human face seemed to melt off a form made of rebar and wood fragments, the jaw falling and hitting the center console with a meaty thud. It's dangerous. Sam screamed as the ground opened up beneath the taxi cab, but the car didn't fall in. The hole wasn't nearly big enough. Instead, the car started to fold right at halfway. One end moved up to meet the other, Sam crying out as he tried to break the shatterproof window with his bare hands. Even if he'd had something that could do the job, he didn't have the time before the taxi crunched up like someone closing a book. Nothing but twisted metal and a broken frame exposing that the taxi hadn't even had an engine. Sam's screams of terror turned to those of pain as the steel pierced him moments before the taxi had made itself thin enough to fall into the space beneath it. A sickening, cloying smell hit my nostrils again, and I realized it was emanating from the hole that had been made in the nearby manhole cover. I broke out of my fixation on the source of the stench when Annie shook me before pointing towards the electronic billboard, which had replaced its ads with a very different message, simple white text on a black background. Go into the taxis. It'll be faster. Struggling won't save you from me. I'm still hungry. 
Shortly after that, we all heard a new sound over the hissing and sizzling of the acid flowing under our feet. The rolling of more taxicabs slowed to a crawl before some unseen force launched them ahead again like a child pushing a toy car along a floor, coming this way. Once again, we threw ourselves down the street, but after everything else, it was getting to be too much. I started seeing cameras in every window, and it seemed like each street we passed had another taxi cab, some sort of van, or even a bus rolling down it, those dressed-up puppets staring ahead at nothing just to complete the illusion. We all gasped for air as they all closed in. I gulped. In there, I said, pointing at a dollar store we were one building down from. We can't go in there, said Travis. It'll get us. No choice, I said. It'll definitely get us if we stay out here. The bus rounded the corner of the street, heading right towards us. We hurled ourselves at the doors of the dollar store, opening them just enough to slip in and vanish inside. Once inside, we moved over to the checkout counters and promptly collapsed onto the ground, wheezing for air and aching all over. I focused on my breath, in and out, the stitch in my side starting to fade as I tried to lie down in a way that let me breathe more easily. It took a while, but I regained some semblance of energy. Several minutes in the dollar store and still alive. Good sign so far. Travis sat nearby and he shared a glance with me. Still alive, but for how long? I don't spend that much time in dollar stores, but when the rest of the city is trying to kill me, I'm not too picky about my sanctuary. I sat in the middle of one of the aisles with Travis, Roger, Vivi, and Annie. After everything that had happened that night, we helped ourselves to the groceries around us, gulping down water and eating less than healthy snacks in our efforts to cope. A camera in the corner saw everything, but no one came to yell at us, and more importantly, the store didn't immediately collapse in on itself and drop us into a vat of acid. The city itself is alive, I said. Travis and Roger nodded. Vivi was enjoying some candy while cradling an off-brand doll her father had found for her. The poor kid looked ready to drop and wouldn't stop shaking. No objections? I asked. I've lived my entire life in this city, said Roger. It's always been different. Everything's so close. The streets have more bicycles than cars, and so much of it was built with aid from the municipality. Yet, at the same time, I never knew anyone who worked in construction or civil engineering. So many buildings just popped up at a speed I didn't know the government could manage. He looked outside. Almost like the structures weren't so much built as they were... grown. I've only lived here for a bit, but I could feel it too, said Travis. I just thought it was a well-designed city, the sort of place where everything truly was in arm's reach. But the more I stayed here, the more everything just seemed so... uniform... So many buildings were built the same way. Lots of cookie-cutter blocks with a little bit of everything mixed throughout them. Then how did I pick the one building that isn't trying to kill us? I asked. This used to be an empty lot, 
said Roger. The dollar store had its own contractors build it. They didn't work with the city. I'd imagine many of the big corporate chains did things by their own standards, and since no one could have known this city was alive, they didn't stop it. There is no earthly way people in the government weren't aware of this, I said. How on earth could something like this be completely missed by everyone? Did the city workers not notice random spouts of acid in the sewer system? Nothing like this has ever happened in the decades I've called this city home, said Roger. There's no way the municipality could have kept this a secret. Someone would have leaked it. And if they had known about it, they would have made sure they were the last people in the city should it do... this. Because the government always has the best interests of its people at heart, I said, rolling my eyes. They have the interest of the votes of its people, said Travis. Hard to vote when you're dead. I don't know how this slipped under the radar on Earth, but it still doesn't change that we're stuck here. Fair enough, I said. Please tell me we're at least getting close to the city limits. At this point, City Hall has to be a lost cause. A few more miles to go, he said. It'll take us longer if we go around the historical district. I also don't know how much time we can spend on the streets. The city's actively tracking down whoever isn't already dead. I thought about that, I said. When we were on the streets, it saw Jess through the cameras. It also knew when Sam interacted with the taxi cab, but it didn't know we survived the foundry. I took a drink of water. I don't think it actually knows where we are. We're like fleas on the back of a dog. It only knows where we are when it can sense us. The cameras are its eyes and the cars its digits. How are a few fleas supposed to get off the dog? Asked Travis. We stay where it can't sense us, I said. We stick to back alleys and go through shops and apartments. We keep that up as much as we can until we're past the city limits. I didn't mention the possibility that the city limits weren't where its influence ended. Assuming it doesn't collapse a building on us as soon as we enter it, said Travis. I think if it wanted to, it would have caved in the entire city already, I said. But it hasn't. I think it's saving energy. It doesn't want to destroy itself. It's already feasted on the entire banquet inside its borders. It won't use more effort to catch the remaining few bites than they would be worth. That's enough for me to risk it, said Roger. For my daughter. I want to stay here, whimpered Vivi. Sweetie, we can't, said Roger. This place isn't safe. I don't want to die, she cried, clinging to her father. If we go out there, we're gonna die. We'll fall in the pits and die if we go out there. I don't want to go. She sobbed, and Annie moved forward and placed a hand on her back, rubbing it. She looked at Roger and gave him a smile of encouragement. She then looked at us and nodded. If you want, Roger, you two can stay here, I said. The city can't affect this store, right? You could wait here. I'm sure there'll have to be rescue crews. There's no way the National Guard won't get rallied because of this. An entire city can't just disappear. Okay, said Roger, hugging his daughter. If no one comes, though, please send help. 
If we get out of here, I think we'll have earned a call to someone in power, said Travis. A noise cut through the ambient sound of the fluorescent lights and whirring refrigerators. Something rushed underneath our feet. We all shot up, Roger scooping up his daughter as we looked around, trying to figure out what on earth was happening now. I thought you said the city didn't make this building, I said. It didn't, said Roger. Then it dawned on him. But it's connected to the municipal utilities. Explosions blasted from the bathrooms to the side, the doors blown off their hinges as pressurized acid shot out of the pipes once used for water. My eyes widened as I saw the stream of acrid-smelling green fluid pouring from within, then bulged more when I looked to the front entrance and saw a bus rolling to a stop right in front, the only way out through the bus's own open door. We backed away as the torrent of corrosive fluids kept pouring out of the bathrooms, the splintered bits of wood and any foodstuffs in the path of the flood sizzling and popping as the acid got to work on them, the items almost melting before our eyes. It spread out further and further, consuming everything in its path, even the drywall near the door starting to crumble at the base. As it continued pouring out, another explosion rocked the ground beneath us, Water pipes blasting open sections of the floor to allow the melting slurry to disappear into the network beneath us. Roger and Vivi found themselves on the opposite side of the expanding flood from the rest of us, scrambling for one of the nearby shelves. Roger hoisted his daughter onto the top before climbing up, knocking down the various bags of potato chips that had previously been on it. As the fluids came closer, the salty snacks floated on the surface like buoys before disintegrating into empty bags, then nothing at all. Vivi cried in terror, clinging to her father piggyback as he tried to make his way across the shelves to a corner of the store. Travis, Annie, and I rushed to the other side of the building, barging into the employee-only section and rushing past the shelves of backstock as the swinging doors did nothing to stop the constant flow. Travis stopped momentarily, grabbing a large box and pulling it across the hall, stopping the torrent from reaching us for a few extra moments as we made our way to the emergency exit. An emergency exit that was completely blocked by pallets of groceries waiting to be stocked. "'You've got to be kidding me!' I yelled. "'This is a safety code violation! We shouldn't have to be putting up with this on top of everything else!' Less talk, more pulling boxes off, said Travis, grabbing the edge of the topmost box and throwing it to the floor. It looked like the pallet contained canned goods, jars of pickles, and other things that wouldn't be moving in a hurry, and already I could see our impromptu levy dissolving into viscous, disgusting green sludge. Drains in the floor let some of the acid flow out, but it wasn't nearly enough, not even when the walls started to break down. I looked further down the hall and saw just what we needed to escape. This way, I called out, darting down to the roof access ladder nestled in the corner, wading around more pallets of items waiting to be stocked to reach it finally. I grabbed the rungs and hauled myself up, everything in the cramped, flooding, dissolving chamber closing in on me, getting closer and closer. I didn't even know if they were following me as I moved up, then forced open the access hatch and pulled myself out. I fell onto the roof, calming myself down the best I could with pleasant memories. 
country, open home, cats running around, not a skyscraper in sight. It helped, but I still felt the grit underneath me, heard the metallic echoes of Travis and Annie going up the rungs, and saw a fly rubbing its proboscis over the desiccated remains of a mouse a couple of feet away from me. I sat upright, watching a small puddle of water start flowing toward the center of the store's roof as the walls beneath us continued to degrade under the city's assault. I heard windows near the front of the store shatter, and a tiny part of me hoped that it was Roger and Vivi escaping out the front before the acid got them. "'Good call,' said Travis. "'It just won't give up, will it? Hasn't it eaten enough? Are we really worth all this effort?' Annie tapped us both and gestured to the store below us. She pulled out a wrapped snack cake she had in a pocket and pointed to it. She tossed it away and smacked her head. Next time we're desperate for shelter and about to die, we'll make sure to pick a place not quite so loaded with edible items, I said. Now, let's get off this roof before it... The center of the roof caved in tiles and lights shorting out as they fell into the bubbling pond of acid that had formed underneath us, even the shelves starting to fall victim to the fluids. The metal carts withstood the assault, but even the plastic struggled to maintain their form. We backed away as the hole moved outward, passing under a power line as we reached the edge of the building and looked out. To the side of the store was a dumpster, Shut tight, but high enough we could get down onto it without risking hurting ourselves. I took that fall as fast as I could, and Travis followed shortly after. Annie paused for a moment, psyching herself up before getting on the edge of the roof and turning to hoist herself down. As she lifted a foot to move down, one of the power lines overhead snapped, the cable swooping down and wrapping itself around her leg pulling tight before the pole itself fell into the store, twisting as it did to drag Annie away from us and down into the newly formed pit. We could barely cry out before we heard the crash, then the splash, and then nothing. Part of me was almost glad she wasn't able to scream before the city took her like she was just another piece of popcorn in a near-empty bucket. We're not going to make it, said Travis. We're dead, Steve. There's no way. No way we can make it to the city limits. We can't possibly get out of here in time. We're not dead until we're dead, I said, trying to fight off the apathy starting to fall over me. Really, what was the point? What would we do? Hide in buildings? They probably had cameras in them, or more imposters like the taxicabs, or some other fresh hell as the city took its pound of flesh. Or, rather, every last bit it could. Wife at home. Stupid cats frolicking around. Again, the buildings loomed overhead, identical multi-use developments distinguished by nothing in this back alley, each window seeming like an eye. Open spaces, green grass, trees blanketing hills looking like broccoli. The ground was trembling under my feet like the city somehow knew we were here, probably watching from whatever camera it had just used to catch Annie as she was about to escape. Maybe it didn't have the right angle to actually see us, but it knew we were here. 
I grabbed a fallen rod of metal that had been part of the store and walked up to the brick face of one of the buildings. You can't keep taking everything! You've already had enough! And what are you giving back? What have you done that we couldn't do ourselves? Steve, said Travis, I know what I said, but you really shouldn't... I didn't listen. After this entire night, I was just done. This is what I think of you! I yelled as I jammed the metal into the mortar, smashing it away a chunk at a time. How's that? Hurts, huh? I continued railing against it, dislodging a brick, which I grabbed and threw through the nearest window before turning back to the section of the wall I had been assaulting. A shining white strip of bone hid just behind the brick. I jumped back, dropping my weapon as I saw it. It looked like a section of a femur or something mixed into the wall like it was any ordinary building material. Then I saw other splintered bits of bone joining it, tarsals and metatarsals, and I think I saw part of a jaw, all bleached white and intact. Defacing public property is a crime, you know, said a voice behind me. I turned around and saw a group of men approaching us. They looked to be wearing uniforms of some sort, but I couldn't tell what they were. Oh, thank God, I said, feeling so much tension wash away from me that I nearly collapsed. Is it safe on this road? We must get out of this city as fast as possible. Hey, said Travis. You're the garbage man who works near my apartment. He looked at one of the men. Wait... How are you all here, and why are you so calm? Most of the city has been murdered. The men raised bats and walked toward us, weapons in the air. I came to on my knees, the world fading in around me, hands tied behind my back. I heard a groaning nearby I could recognize as belonging to Travis. I had a pounding headache courtesy of the beatdown given to us by the city's municipal waste handlers. I'd like to say that Travis and I put up a good fight, but no, we lasted seconds at most. Outnumbered after everything we'd been through up against people who looked fresh and ready for anything, it wasn't much of a contest. We found ourselves in a crowd of men, women, and children who looked like they had fared similarly to us. Roger and Vivi not among them. Everyone was tied and bruised, and it looked like they had been put through the ringer. There were probably a hundred survivors in the center of the plaza. When I looked around, I could see the historic town hall looming above, and a familiar face looking down at the captured innocents with his squadron of armed city workers surrounding us, weapons at the ready. That's the last of them, Mayor! said one of the workers. Judging by his uniform logo, he worked in water. City's already claimed everyone else. How many people escaped? asked Mayor Toomley, looking over the crowd of tired, sobbing people as he wrung his hands. Was he sweating? We need as few people to escape as possible. Every last body counts. Main roads out fell in almost immediately, said the worker. I think the city took care of escapees for us. The worker spared a glance up, 
and I saw yet another camera, this one nestled on a nearby streetlight. We secured the riverside almost immediately, and almost all citizens went to the planned locations. It all worked like a charm, sir. Good, said the mayor, eyes darting around. Good, good. Then this is the last? Mayor Toomley! cried out Travis, staring at the mayor in his worn, wrinkled suit. Why are you doing this? Please! Isn't it obvious? I asked him. Your mayor knew all along and sold you out. I need to hear it from him, he cried out. We voted for him, supported him. He owes us an explanation before he has us murdered. He looked me in the face, and out of the corner of my eye, I could see a sharp-looking rock or bit of concrete in his hands, working at the rope that had him bound. I do owe you all that, said the mayor, looking out over the crowd. You all should rejoice, though. This city has provided so much to so many. It's given you and your parents, your parents' parents, and so on for 200 years a home, a place to live, to thrive. You should be honored that you're finally able to give back. He wrung his hands as he looked over the crowd. For the past several years, the city has been talking to us, preparing us for its planned tithe. It told us about how it built the first sections of your home, giving all it could to grow and grow and take more people under its care. And all it wants in return is this harvest. We didn't need this, said Travis. Not at this price. Yet you all didn't object to taking it, said the mayor. Now, it's time. Don't worry, though. While you all will go on to contribute yourselves to the greater good of the city, it has spoken to me and promised that my loyal civil servants will be spared. We'll make sure the city can rebuild, work with the state to bring people back in, and return this metropolis to the utopia it was. So the city can eat people all over again and not even leave us with graves, growled Travis. Unacceptable sacrifice for the betterment of the numerous generations that'll live in the city until then, said the mayor. His eyes darted around again, and he looked at the same camera the water worker had. I'm afraid now it's not my place to speak anymore. He bowed his head to the people before him. Your sacrifice will not be forgotten. I'm still hungry... The ground caved in right underneath the mayor, making the municipal workers near him dart back in shock, their guns and weapons falling to the ground. What the hell? One cried out before the cobblestone street beneath him parted and he fell in as well. The mayor clung to the road around him, eyes wide as the plaza collapsed in on itself, the holes throughout grabbing the city's former servants while a large pit opened up in the center pulling the innocents into a dark abyss, reeking like the others. Travis darted to his feet, bonds broken, and helped me up before dragging me away from the expanding hole, a widening gullet gulping down countless people as thoughtlessly as a whale gulping down krill. These esophagi of roads and pipes opened everywhere, leaving no path for us but up the steps toward the historic town hall a plain stone building used for nothing but a small little museum in favor of a more modern operation for the mayor and his assistants, 
eleven of whom had found themselves serving their city with their last breaths. The mayor cried out to us as we darted past him, dodging around another hole opening up that swallowed a waste worker. Please, he begged. This wasn't supposed to happen. It promised me it would spare some of us if we helped it. And you trusted it like we trusted you, said Travis, turning away and leading me on. I followed after, the mayor letting out a final plead before losing his grip and joining his citizens. There was no path for us but the path forward. We hurled ourselves up the steps of City Hall, busting through the wooden doors and into the open space inside. The exhibits and stands that comprised the museum still remained, filling the space along the walls, separated only by the occasional glass window overlooking the river flowing a couple dozen feet below. But the walls of the City Hall, the ceilings, even parts of the floor, much of the wood and stone had fallen away like a snake shedding its skin revealing pulsating flesh mixed with old metal pipes and insulated wires, starting separate but growing closer and closer until they reached the back of the chamber, where two hundred years ago a raised stage had held a mayor speaking to his people for the first time. And on that stage stood... I couldn't call it a man or a woman. It looked human but almost as if someone had taken every single person alive and created the perfect average across all of them. It wore broken bits of stone, wood, bone, concrete, and more like a second skin, the pieces shuffling about and rearranging themselves on its androgynous body. The face looked like a person who might have been called beautiful, if not for just being... off... It was like someone trying to recreate a face and getting the details too right, resulting in something that cannot and should not exist. Its short hair didn't move as it should, staying in the same position no matter how it turned. It looked at us. I'm still hungry, it said in the same voice that had plagued our minds throughout the night. How many people have you murdered tonight? growled Travis. He handed me the strip of stone he had been using, and I worked away at my rope as I walked by his side. We moved closer to the thing, sidestepping the sections of the floor where the inner workings of the city had been exposed. I kept pace, staying close, watching the nearby windows as we passed them, as if this thing would even give us a chance to escape before it killed us. 91,364, it said casually, as if someone answering a math problem in a class. Still reaching those in non-municipal construction, all of the buildings I made have been claimed, except two. Then why don't you? asked Travis. I freed my hands and let the rope fall to the ground still clinging to the stone like it was anything resembling a useful weapon. The rope landed on a section of exposed flesh, sinking in like someone slurping up a noodle. What's even the purpose of this form? You respond best to a physical presence, it said in that cold, empty cadence, almost like an old text-to-voice reader. 
As we got closer, I saw that the city's mouth made only the slightest effort to sink to its dialogue, flapping up and down like a puppet. The mayor didn't listen to me until I appeared like this. Yet, it was putting on the show for us? Why was it wasting time with the spectacle when it could just eat us like it did everyone else? And you thanked him for listening to you by eating him, said Travis. He kept walking toward it, and I could hear shuffling, squirming, almost slithering around us. Countless loose wires dangled from the ceiling, barely supported but still staying high. What are you? The city thought for a moment. Uruk, it said. Chichen Itza, Roanoke, more, and now... It gestured to everything around it. Put down the gun and you won't have to suffer. Our eyes bulged, and a second later, Travis pulled out the pistol he had been hiding within his coat, doing his best to obscure it with his arm. He pointed it at the city. Of course you knew I had it, he said. That's why you haven't killed us yet, isn't it? We're actually a danger to you. Put down the gun, Travis, said the city. It'll be okay. I don't prolong the suffering. If you continue to resist... It looked at me. I don't know you. I don't live here, I said. Keep him out of this, said Travis, or we'll find out why you're so afraid of this little pea-shooter. While he had been so focused on the city, I had seen exactly why. Below the city's stone-clad feet, part of the wall supporting the stage had chipped away. All the wires, veins, arteries, and pipes all came together below the stage, and from within the cracks I saw a pulsating, gray, wrinkled wall of flesh. "'Travis,' I whispered. "'Below it!' His eyes fell below, and he saw what I saw. The city reacted before either of us could, the wires falling down toward us. I froze up, but Travis didn't waste a millisecond. He shoulder-barged into me with all the force he could muster, sending me tumbling to the side and through the window. I barely had time to process the sight of him turning to the city, the wires from the roof closing in on him like the tentacles of an octopus wrapping around his limbs and neck. And just before I hit the cold water below me, I heard the shots echo out from within. Cold mud filled in between my fingers as I hauled myself up from the river's edge, several miles south of the city. Every single part of me ached, and I felt like I had spent the night in a freezer, so I could only imagine what I looked like by that point. My phone was also dead, soaked through in my hours-long journey down the river. But I was alive. I was tired, cut, and worn, but for the most part, no worse for wear. A great deal more than I could say for almost a hundred thousand other people, including Travis. I hadn't been able to focus on what had happened after Travis had taken his shot. I'd been struggling to stay above the water as I did my best to resist drowning. 
My coat had protected me from a lot of the broken glass, but I'd been forced to remove it to keep from sinking in the river. At some point, I'd gotten my shoes off, leaving me barefoot as I walked through the forest in search of anything that looked like it belonged to a person. The sun had just started to rise, the glowing warmth welcome after everything I'd been through. It helped a little, but this numbness wouldn't soon wear off. I finally found a paved road, and from there I turned and walked until I came across this seedy little gas station a few miles outside of the nearest town. Speaking as someone who used to work in some dangerous areas, this was one of the roughest-looking gas stations I had ever seen, crumbling and worn down. Two old pumps sat out in front of the building, surrounded by cracked asphalt, bare dirt, and a dumpster with a suspicious amount of noise coming from it and reminding me of home. I hauled myself in and toward the counter, greeted by a surprised man my own age who looked like he'd gotten about as much sleep as I had. He closed his book, which, oddly enough, had a gas station on the front cover, and looked me up and down. Rough night? he asked. If you need to use the phone, you're going to have to pay up front. Thankfully, I still had my wallet, so one swipe of the credit card later, I was able to make a call to my wife requesting a ride, with what I promised to be a very thorough, if unbelievable, explanation for why I was calling from some random gas station in the middle of nowhere. She had no idea what had happened to the city and I had a feeling she wasn't going to find out. There was no way this was going to be allowed into circulation. Even if Travis had succeeded, if he had managed to strike true, this would never get past those in power. I also purchased a large stockpile of junk food to hold me over, and the gas station attendant was kind enough to lend me his computer at my request. So I sat in a small little booth to the side, awaiting my ride as I typed out everything that had happened in an email to myself. "'Quite the story,' said the attendant over my shoulder, making me jump. "'That place up north always seemed really off, but you can't tell about those places until you go there yourself. As close as I am, though, I always figured.' "'Wait,' I said. "'You believe my story?' I've been here long enough to learn about things the average person never does, said the attendant, moving away from me and back behind the counter. One of those things being, I guess you could think of them as mimics. They have no real form to call their own, but are able to become one with inanimate objects and integrate themselves in with them to make use of the disguise, before eventually moving on to someplace else, leaving a shell behind. They're an old species, old enough to see humans come into their own and move across the world. Though none of them remember the time before humanity, human sapience and their sapience are tied together. Not many like to think about their own self-awareness being courtesy of their food, though. So, these monsters have been eating people for millennia? I asked. How could people not know about this, no matter how good their disguises are? He chuckled. They're not really monsters, he said. Think of it like a wolf. A wolf will hunt down and eat a rabbit, or several of them, to get full. It's not out of some sense of malice, or even that the rabbit is its preferred prey. It just needs to eat, and it takes a lot of rabbits to keep going. 
though I suppose the rabbit would see the wolf as a monster for eating its kind. As he finished his comparison, a man wearing a ski mask burst in and pointed a gun at the counter. Give me a bottle of whiskey and whatever you have in the register, he barked. He glowered at me as well. And you, empty your pockets or you're both dead. We both complied, him snatching the meager contents of the cash register, his whiskey, and my wallet. He knocked over one of the snack stands on the way out and made it into the lot, heading to an idling truck nearby. Before he made it halfway, though, the ground opened up beneath him and he fell in, dropping his gun and the bottle of whiskey. He scrabbled at the cracked asphalt around him, screaming as he struggled in vain to break free from the jaws of a creature that I thought I'd escaped. The open feel of this little gas station evaporated, and suddenly I felt like the walls were about to cave in on me and crush me to paste. I glanced at the gas station attendant, but he didn't even so much as flinch, still focusing on fixing up the fallen stand. Soon... The robber was gone, and nothing was left but a new crack in the asphalt that had moved back into place. The gun and whiskey had vanished, undoubtedly sucked into the ground, and the truck moved on its own, rolling downhill in the direction of the highway. The natural slope led it onto the main road, and it traveled a ways before I heard a distant crash. The attendant gave me a smirk. Some aren't too choosy about their prey but I find fewer people get suspicious when it's just criminals that go missing, he said. No one's going out of their way to look for... He paused for a moment. Charlie Friedman was born in 1987 in Hannibal, Missouri. He signed up to be an organ donor, but I don't think he expected how that would happen. I still couldn't get myself to move. He smirked. While I might not attract the clientele one would think a gas station would want, I do value those that don't think I'm just an easy score, he said. I appreciate the latest gossip. I thought the last of the giants had starved. Most do when they get that big. But I guess that one figured out how to conserve energy best. It got sloppy letting you two get close to its core, though. Maybe your friend made it pay for that mistake. He thought for a moment. You mentioned the Lewis and Clark buildings near Jennings in your story? He asked. I managed to nod. He moved over to me, taking the laptop. He hit the send button on my drafted email before logging me out and closing the lid. Then he reached into his pocket and pulled out something that he shoved into one of my hands. My wallet. Been so long since we passed each other looking for new grounds... Tell that one I said hi if you ever pass by it, little rabbit, he said. Something outside caught his eye. But for now, I think your little doe is here. I looked outside and saw my wife's truck. I didn't say another word to the gas station. I bolted out of its depths as fast as I could and threw myself into the truck, wrapped up in my wife's arms as she squeezed me. What on earth happened to you, Steve? She asked. What's going on? I can't find anything online. I can't even find the city online. I'll tell you, I said. I looked back to see him just inside the building, smiling at me, 
giving me a wave with one hand while he held a bleached white skull in the other. But for now, just drive. You've been listening to Urban Appetite by Justin K. Arthur. Justin K. Arthur writes clusters of random words and hopes that they take on forms that are coherent to the average person. He's fond of fantasy and horror in particular. You can find more of his work at www.reddit.com user slash foolkingyotun. That's F-O-O-L-K-I-N-G-J-O-T-U-N. Well, my friends, that ends our broadcast this evening. As a fellow introvert and slight agoraphobe, it's nice to hear a story that validates my tendencies towards isolation. Yes, I'm sure that my local city won't open up and devour me if I go visit. But then again, why take the chance? And, more importantly, how am I to maintain my reputation as a weirdo host of a horror show if I go out and mingle with normal society? In any event, thanks to Justin K. Arthur for the fun yarn, and thanks to all of you for joining me this evening. Be sure to tune in at the same day and time next week for more Horror Hill. And until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, Paul J. McSorley's Fear from the Heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.